Hello and welcome to Voices in Bioethics podcast. I'm your host, Camille Castellane, and today we have the great pleasure of having Marissa Dallas on the podcast with us. Welcome, Marissa. Thanks, Camille. So, Marissa, you have a Bachelor's of Science in Human Biology, and you're also a alumna of the Bioethics Masters in Bioethics program. How did you like the program and the people that you met in the program? How was that experience for you? Honestly, it was a wonderful experience. It was probably my favorite degree that I have completed out of three so far. It was really a pleasure, honestly. Everybody I met in the program was super helpful, very nice. All the professors were world-class and always willing to hop on a call or answer emails about any clarification I had or further discussion I wanted to do. I'm still in contact with many of the people that were in my cohort, which has been great just for networking and also just friendships. So it was a great, wonderful experience all in all. Yeah, that's awesome. That's great. I have to say that was my experience as well. And I met you in the program, Camille. Oh, yay. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think we started in the same year as well, which is a while back, right? Yeah, yeah. A couple years ago now. Yeah, was that in 2018? Did you also start then or a bit later? I started in 2019. 2019. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure about me either, but one either 2018 or 19. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and then you went on to do a super interesting thesis project. Your thesis title was Sex-Based Bias in Healthcare, Artificial Intelligence Algorithms. What is it? Where does it come from? And how do we mitigate it? I mean, talk about a hot topic. So how was that for you? And tell us more about what were your findings and, yeah, the responses that you got as well. Are you planning to publish it? Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, I'm hoping to publish. I just have to polish a couple more things on it first. But, yeah, basically I was just looking at how artificial intelligence algorithms are being used more and more in the healthcare space to triage patients, to allocate resources, etc. It's becoming like a kind of, I guess, quote unquote, cheaper and easier way to do those things. But one of the issues with them is the data they're trained on is mostly male data, because that's oftentimes who signs up for clinical trials the most. And there's a lot of data lacking, especially in women of childbearing age, because it's kind of difficult to subject a woman who could become pregnant to something that you don't know what would happen to her unborn child. So it's, it's an interesting space. There definitely needs to be more women representation in clinical trials to help mitigate some of these issues that we're seeing. And so the healthcare artificial intelligence algorithms can be trained on um, both male and female data so we can get more accurate results from them. So yeah, definitely an emerging issue in the ethics space and kind of the healthcare space in general as well. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Well, very important work, let me put it like that. There was like a very good documentary as well about the bias in algorithms, but I can't remember what it's called right now. Yeah, you'll have to send it to me once you think of it. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm sure you're well read on the topic as well. And um, was there a reason that you specifically chose like the sex-based bias? Because I know like there are a lot of racial biases as well, to name a few. Yeah, so I was interested in doing something in the artificial intelligence space after I took the artificial intelligence ethics course with Dr. Silverman. 
at Columbia. As I got to more reading, just learning more about the issues in artificial intelligence, and like you said, there's a lot of various issues going on with the algorithms. I kind of went towards the sex-based bias just because it's an important issue right now, and I guess I could kind of relate to it more being a female myself, so it was really interesting to read about it and just kind of see the reasoning behind why there's a lack of female representation in clinical data, and also just kind of the steps that we could take in the future in order to help mitigate these issues from happening. Yeah, for sure. And what do you think are some of the steps that we should be taking to mitigate those issues, the issues of sex-based bias in intelligence algorithms? Yeah, definitely. I think um, one of the main steps that we can take is to enroll more women in clinical trials. There's been some incentives through advertising the clinical trials at nail salons, grocery stores, hair salons, places that are more female. There's like more females that go to, if that makes sense. So just to try to get the word out more, part of the reason why there's not as much female enrollment in these trials is one, a lot of women don't know about them. And two, it's harder for women to get away from their responsibilities in the home in order to participate in a clinical trial. When you're working a full-time job and you have a family, it's kind of hard to take, you know, a couple hours out during the week in order to go participate. So hopefully we'll be able to increase enrollment so we can have that data for the algorithms in order to help mitigate some of the bias that's happening with these programs. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's definitely some of the common issues that faced women and people who are caretakers and having to take on those roles additional to all the other roles that the world expects of us. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. In your title, you also say, where does it come from? So would you just say that it's society's biases that are just being expressed? Yeah. I mean, if we think about the whole scandal of all these AI apps that are also creating these avatars and how people have been up in arms about how they are giving more sexualized images to women as well because they're scouring the internet for data right i don't know if you saw saw that yeah i think are you talking about like the facebook metaverse stuff yeah there's been like in the news there's been as well one of the apps it's called lenza and it generates those avatars of people you upload like 10 or 20 selfies and then it generates completely like unique avatars of you but then there's been like a woman who was of asian descent and she got a lot of just sexualized images whereas if you're a male you get a lot of just more interesting and different like you be an astronaut or you would be depicted as a traveling in into forest space or something like that but I can send you the link later as well, and you can check it out. And let us know what you think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't know about that. I had seen some things online about how in the Facebook metaverse, people were complaining that there was like a lot of overly sexual tones to it that they felt oh, were really? kind of inappropriate, especially for children to be viewing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's the thing. Like these apps are just, they're popping up and technology, they're developing them, and there's no like control or yeah, regulation of it at this moment in time, at least. I agree. I think that's one of the issues right now in the technology space is that the technology is evolving more rapidly than the laws associated with it are. 
I think we saw that really come to head with the whole Facebook trial with the Senate of how it seems that the government officials that were quote unquote trying Facebook were kind of out of touch with what was going on in the, the technology space. So it's kind of hard to create legislation for something that you don't really understand, which mm-hmm. is understandable. And especially with the rate technology evolves, it's hard to keep up with it with how slow our um, legal system moves. Yeah, for sure. Luckily, we have a few other bioethicists as well working on the legal aspects of it. <laughs> so that's good. Yeah, definitely. And so, Marissa, you then finished your master's in bioethics at Columbia University, and then you chose to do a a doctor of pharmacy at the University of Michigan, which you're currently busy with. And I find that so interesting because not a lot of, I think, the people who complete the program in bioethics choose to go into the pharmaceutical industry just because of image that is out there which is often like a a bad image about pharma being notorious for being unethical so i think that's very unique and interesting so yeah tell us more about why did you choose that path thank you yeah definitely so i actually became interested in pharmacy while i was doing my masters at columbia i did a concentration in biotechnology and pharmaceutics and ethics so I took a few classes about pharmaceutical development and, like I mentioned earlier, the AI ethics and really became interested in pharmacy through that. And so I was lucky enough to be able to continue my education at the University of Michigan to get my doctor of pharmacy. And it's been a really great experience so far. I'm only in like my P1.5 year, so I'm not too far into the program, but it's really been great. That's great. Yeah. I know like when we spoke, you were very interested like in the non-compliance often that we find with yeah patients using pharmacy drugs and then struggling to comply with with all the regulations or, or prescriptions, etc. Et yeah, that's definitely an ethical issue in pharmacy. The non-adherence is really difficult Especially when, for example, if someone has diabetes that they're choosing not to use insulin for, and you know there's all these issues that they're going to be facing in the future due to their noncompliance, but at the end of the day, they still have the autonomy to decide whether or not they want to take their medication. But from a healthcare provider standpoint, it can be really frustrating because you just want to kind of tell them, like, why aren't you doing this, you know? But all you can really do is just explain what the benefits of using the medication are, what the long-term consequences of not using it are, and then hopefully they'll become compliant from there. But unfortunately, you do see a lot of people that have preventable issues due to non-compliance of their medication. And then I guess another issue in pharmacy is kind of like the personal bias aspect, especially with hot button issues regarding like abortion and birth control and things like that. I don't think there's a lot of them, but there are some who choose not to dispense plan B or birth control due to personal beliefs that they have. So that's another interesting ethical issue as to whether or not a healthcare provider should be allowed to, I guess it's withholding care in a way, right? To not dispense birth control or plan B, like things related to reproductive health based off of like personal bias that they might have. 
Yeah, and how do you think you'd approach something like that? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I know we did talk about it when I was in master's program at Columbia. It's hard when you're approaching these intersectional issues that might be related to religion or culture or something like that. So you don't want to prevent somebody who might be an awesome practitioner in every other way, but their religion prevents them from dispensing birth control or plan B. I think as of now, you can obtain your prescription at a different pharmacy. Then that also calls into question, like if you're living in a rural versus an urban area, whereas obviously in an urban area, you're going to have a lot more options of places you could go if a particular pharmacist or physician won't give you a birth control prescription. You could just go to another pharmacy, whereas if you're living in a rural area where maybe there's only one pharmacy within 30 minutes of you and they won't dispense the birth control, it's a bit trickier. But I think now with the emergence of like the mail order birth control, where you can like order it online and have it sent directly to your house, it's kind of helping with a lot of those issues. Yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely an important topic as well and very relevant after all the things that happened this year. And yeah, if you say that yeah, non-adherence is kind of one of the issues that you're interested in, was it based on any personal experience or something that you had with someone that you knew who didn't comply with their medications? I know you're, you, you mentioned that your dad is a doctor and your mom is a biochemist, or is it just a more general interest in it? Yeah, that's a good question. Thank you for asking. Actually, it was kind of from when I started working at my dad's clinic when I was younger, and I, I've worked there for about 10 years now, on and off. And it was just kind of hard seeing people that weren't complying with treatment, and then they were getting way worse later on, and you knew it was preventable if they had just stuck to their treatment plan. And it's really frustrating to see, but at the end of the day, like I said, it's people have the autonomy to decide whether or not they want to adhere to their treatment and yeah all you can really do is just give them all the facts of what will happen if they don't adhere and kind of give them the treatment plan and I guess from there the patient just has to decide what they want to do and I understand it's deeper than someone just deciding they don't want to comply a lot of it has to do with maybe not being able to afford medication insurance can be difficult to deal with and they might not be covering the medication that someone needs, or maybe the person can only afford a copay for half the dose that they're supposed to be taking. So in some of the time, instead of them just not taking the drug in general, you see them taking like a lower dose or maybe like skipping every other day just to kind of stretch out the pills that they have because unfortunately costs can become an issue. So I know that, that a lot of the pharmaceutical companies have programs that you can sign up for where they'll help pay for the medication that you have. And there's various uh, government programs that you can get involved with as well. But I think another issue is a lot of people don't really know about these programs. And so maybe at the healthcare practitioner level, if we are trained, I know at University of Michigan, they do a really good job of showing us how to access resources to pass along to our patients who might be dealing with some financial difficulties. And I think that's really great because that way we can get the word out more about these programs that people can use in order to help them if they're in a hard spot. Yeah, I think that's great. So there might be a few reasons why for non-compliance, including insurance and misinformation, financial difficulties, bit of education as well. 
and then of course also as you say like it is anyone's personal choice as well how they choose to deal and to treat their diagnosis i wonder what would you say about if we think of just like the paternalistic view of doctor patient relationship do you think there's like a similar relationship when it comes to people being prescribed medication like the pharmacist or do you think that at the moment that's kind of bypassed it's not really your role or it is <laughs> yeah i think that's a really interesting point that you bring up and actually it's funny because when i started the masters in bioethics program at columbia i think i really had like a paternalistic view of medicine where i like you just said i was kind of like well if the doctor tells you to do it like why don't you just do it but as i went through the program and learned more about all of the contributing factors to these issues then you start to think, okay, well, you know, at the end of the day, people have their own rights and their own autonomy to decide whether or not they want to do something. But I think it's interesting because medicine, you know, if we look at maybe 50 years ago, it was very paternalistic. You, you know, doctors were kind of treated like gods in a way, and you never got a second opinion. You went to the doctor, whatever the doctor told you to do, that was just kind of like the gospel, right? But nowadays, there's so many more doctors, there's more access to doctors through telehealth and phone appointments and things like that, that it's really easy to get an opinion from one doctor, go to another doctor for a second opinion, and kind of like weigh out what you want to do based off of your own research. The internet has made a lot of things really accessible for people to read up on, and there's a lot of really good health literacy things on the internet that kind of break down different diseases and medications in an easy to understand way for someone who maybe isn't in the medical field. What's an example of one of those resources? Maybe our listeners would be interested in checking it out. Yeah, definitely. So one of the really interesting resources is you can pretty much Google any drug and then just Google like, for example, like Enbrel FDA leaflet or something like that. And you can pull up the exact FDA leaflet that tells you what the drug has been approved for, how the drug works, what the ingredients are in the drug, in a pretty like simple-to-understand way, and directly from the FDA, so it's accurate information. And yeah, it's interesting. You can just Google and read up on your medications that you're taking, or maybe a loved one is starting a new medication that you want to learn more about. So it's really interesting. It's a great resource to have. Yeah, I think that's so important for people to also take responsibility for the way that they take their medications. It's a whole system, including the doctor and the pharmacist and if there are caretakers involved in whatever, but just to be informed about the medications that you're taking. And I think doctors don't always have the time or they don't take the time to really just talk about the side effects or how it might impact you or not impact you. I know I've had a few experiences like that. I don't know. My body's very sensitive and stuff. So if there's like a 1% chance that you're going to get this horrible side effect, it's probably me <laughs> that it'll happen to. And yeah, I've, I've kind of been bummed a lot of times that doctors haven't told me, look, this is one of the things that you should look out for. But then if you start reading up and you inform yourself in your own, like, oh, okay, that makes sense. That's why I'm feeling the way that I am. So it's good to have these resources and to be informed. And I think that's an important role of the pharmacist as well. It could be to also just help that whole process. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, one of the things that we learn how to do in school is how to counsel patients on medications that they're taking. Because like you said, oftentimes the physician is so busy, they have a lot on their plate. So it's difficult for them to kind of run through the medication with a patient as well, especially having the pharmacist as a resource who goes through four years of schooling, just learning about drugs and drug interactions and things like that. Yeah, and I agree with you. I think it's really important for people to take charge of their own health and be informed. And I think if you're more informed about the things that could happen down the line, you'll be more proactive about your health, maybe a bit more preventative, which at the end of the day is going to help a lot. I mean, what is the saying? It's like an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? Yeah, yeah, so true. Then one of the last questions that I want to ask you is, after the pandemic, we've seen an uprise in telehealth. And I'm curious about how it works in the US because here in South Africa, like it's been great that we've had a lot of telehealth options being given to to people who can't necessarily come to the doctor. So they'd maybe even be on WhatsApp speaking to a doctor if they're in a rural community and don't have transport or something like that and then they might get prescribed a drug or whatever but I worry about that sometimes because yeah then you have the prescription to get the medicine but then I always I'm curious to know how if people really know what they're doing or even if you get a repeat of a script without actually seeing a doctor but I guess in the U.S. there would definitely be a few more fail-safes in, <laughs> built in. <laughs> you, yeah. Do you think that's an issue or a space where pharmacists can play a role? Yeah, it's been really interesting seeing the rise of the telehealth. In school, they've actually been training us a lot more in the telehealth space just because it's such an emerging field. And pharmacists are kind of pivoting their role into more of a virtual consult in a lot of pharmacies. And like you said, I think it does really increase access to healthcare for a lot of people that are in rural communities or maybe are homebound or can't really find a ride to the doctor, et cetera. So it really brings access to them. And like you said, you don't even have to be on Zoom. You can just be on a phone call with the doctor and describe your symptoms. So it's it's really helpful. I've had some telehealth visits myself with my physician and it was pretty interesting. It's kind of weird, right? You're used to going into the office and now you're just kind of talking to somebody on Zoom and telling them what's going on. But it's definitely an interesting space in healthcare that I think is growing a lot. And like you said, I mean, it's not a perfect system. I think being in person is definitely better than being on Zoom. Also, just from like having that patient provider connection standpoint in person is a lot easier to make than over a call or like on a video chat or something like that. But I think, like you said, in the post-pandemic world, we're just kind of trying to find solutions to problems that maybe didn't really exist before or were there, but we didn't really look at as much as we do now. So I think it's a great option to have. It's been interesting because there has been some cases where in the United States, people were getting for example, Adderall prescriptions from doctors via telehealth that weren't in their state. So, for example, maybe I was getting like a prescription for Adderall from a doctor in Florida and I live here in Michigan. So then when you go to the pharmacy and you present this prescription from a doctor in Florida and they look at your Michigan driver's license and your Michigan address and they're like, okay, this is kind of questionable. 
you might be denied a prescription at some pharmacies based off of them questioning the legitimacy of your prescription. So I think there, you know, there's been some demonstration of it being abused, but I think overall the pros do far outweigh the cons with telehealth. Yeah. Yeah, that's very, very true as well. Are there any other challenges that you would say ethical challenges that the pharma industry or pharmacists are facing at the moment that we didn't touch on? I think what you said earlier about kind of pharma, the pharmaceutical industry being the dark side is still a bias that a lot of people have. And I hope in the future people see that big pharma isn't out to just make a bunch of money and doesn't really care about anybody. At the end of the day, the pharmaceutical industry is the one that's innovating products that are saving, you know, thousands of lives across the world. And a lot of the R&D is happening in the United States, which is really great. And also with the emergence of biosimilars and more commonly generic products, which save people a lot of money. Yeah, I think if people just focus maybe more on the positives of the pharmaceutical industry and the help that is providing and the innovation and medical care that just would not be there without the research and development that's going on in that space. If that makes sense, hopefully. Yeah, no, it does. Yeah, I think okay. it's good if they're lucky to have you on their side. <laughs> <laughs> so, and hopefully you can also make a big impact in a change. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I think definitely using my bioethics master's at Columbia, it's really trained me to look at things through a different lens and consider factors that I wouldn't have considered otherwise if I hadn't done the program. So I think anybody that's listening right now who's considering a career in healthcare or law to really consider doing a bioethics master's, I think it'll definitely enrich your education a lot, especially if you're looking at working for maybe an IRB or getting involved with clinical trials or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for offering that to our listeners. I just have one last question. What is a biosimilar? I didn't know the word. What's the difference between a biosimilar and a generic medicine? Biosimilars are basically generic products. So you have like your reference drug, which is the drug that's developed by the pharmaceutical company, comes to market. You know, they have a patent on it that usually is about like 10 to 30 years, depending on how they structure their patent. And then once the patent expires, generics can come to market, which are deemed by the FDA to be not clinically different from the reference. So I don't want to say they're the same thing, but essentially... It's the same thing. So then the generic comes to market, which is often way cheaper than the reference drug. And so it kind of improves access for people because they can have a cheaper product that's doing effectively the same thing as the reference drug is. Yeah. And the biosimilar? The biosimilars are basically just generics. Okay, the same thing. Okay. Yeah. That's great. So they can either develop... Uh, by the same company that made the reference or they can be made by like completely different company that just goes through the testing and approval process with the FDA. Yeah. No, that's very interesting. Yeah. Is there anything else that you wanted to share with our listeners today? Uh, no, I don't, but I really appreciate you having me on the podcast. It's been, it's been lovely and absolute pleasure to speak with you today. 
Yeah, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and your great knowledge on sex-based biases in AI, as well as all the ethical challenges in the pharmaceutical industry. And we wish you the best of luck in your future studies and once you get employed as well. Thank you so much for your time and it's been great. Thanks, Camille. It's been awesome talking to you. Hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks. Thanks.